Let's turn back again to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Many Christians get doubts. Doubts about God. Doubts about the Bible. I'm not going to give specific examples because I expect many of you know them from your own experience and because going through examples of doubts you could get could be very unhelpful. It could be a way to prompt all sorts of doubts you might not have already. Doubts trouble us. They weaken us. They sap our joy and enthusiasm. They stop us denying ourselves. Why would you put yourself out for something you're not sure about? So doubts are a danger that we must fight off, not something to just let them rumble in the background and think, oh, well, these things always happen. And Psalm 73 gives us an example of a saint, one of God's people, who's doubting. Last two weeks, Eddie has preached and he's shown here we have a man called Asaph and he's envying the wicked because he sees them comfortable and doing well. Uh, They've got prosperous lives, even though they're wicked. Sometimes it seems because they're wicked, it seems to benefit them while he is suffering. And yet we saw over the last two weeks that by the end of the psalm, he's looking to God and he's delighting in what he has in God. So Eddie told us the psalm goes from they, they, they to I, I, I to you, you, you. They. Asaph, to start with, is looking at them, the wicked, and he's taken up with them. And then he's all turned in on self. I, me. But he ends up you, looking to God and focusing on him. And what we heard in the last two weeks is, I think, the most important lessons from Psalm 73. But there's another lesson from the psalm I want us to hear tonight. Because Asaph isn't just envying, he's also doubting. And if a person's doubting, it's not good enough just to have asserted what we have at the end of Psalm 73. Knowing God is better than what the wicked people have. Because the doubting person is probably thinking, but is that true? What if it's not true? When Asaph was back in verses 2 to 14, which is where he's struggling with his troubles with, look at what the wicked are like and look what I'm facing and is it really worth serving God? In other words, he's doubting. If he was told, verse 25, wonderful verse, whom have you in heaven but God? There's no one on earth worth having except God. Well, Asaph's response might have been rather sceptical. He probably wouldn't have said it to you, but he might have thought it inside. But the trouble is, I'm not sure that's true. The trouble is, that doesn't seem to be any help to me. I've experienced having doubts and having people just answer them by quoting something from the Bible. And I felt even worse because I thought, am I that bad that you don't even understand that actually I'm struggling to believe that? But Psalm 73 doesn't do that. It doesn't just assert. It doesn't just quote and say, come on, pull your socks up and believe it. It helps us to get from doubting to delighting in God. It shows us a path moving us from doubt to delight. It doesn't go straight from verse 14, where Asaph is in the pit, thinking it's just not worth serving God, to verse 23, where he's delighting in God. There's something in between. A path from the doubt to the delight. 
Now, before we travel down that path, which is the aim this evening, there was a well-known preacher in the 20th century called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he preached on Psalm 73, and it's been put into a book called, I think it's called Faith on Trial. And if you read that book, you will find that I haven't copied everything that he says. I haven't. I actually don't fully agree completely with everything he says, but it is immensely helpful. And I have got one or two or possibly three or four things from it. So I'm just acknowledging in case you think, ah, this isn't original. Well, my job isn't to be original. My job is to be helpful. And as I found him helpful, I'm going to tell you some of the things he said, but I won't all the time quote and say, this is from Lloyd-Jones. I feel like saying that because some of these things were quite controversial. So if afterwards you come to me and say, how could you say that? I might say, it wasn't just me. (laughs) Okay, let's travel that path that Psalm 73 gives us from doubt to delight. And we start with getting a foothold in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, well, he's just talked about how Is it really worth serving God? Look, it's not getting me anywhere. Then he says, verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. This sort of verse you could slip over so easily. Seems to be nothing there. But it's quite a turning point in the psalm. Let's consider it. In verse 2, Asaph tells us his feet had almost slipped. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. And then we see him slipping as he describes him envying the wicked. And he's got going round and round in his mind an impression of their lives. They are so wicked, but they're so prosperous and so comfortable. A feeling that they get away with their badness and they even prosper from it. Whereas he feels like life is just continually tough for him. It hasn't been worth living God's way. God is a disappointment to him. And so verses 3 to 14 build up this feeling Asaph has until verse 15, this change comes in. And he checks himself. He pauses and he stops himself. Verse 15 he's saying, I've gone too far. I can't say that sort of thing. I'll harm others if I say that. In verses 3 to 14, he's been listening to himself. But in verse 15, he speaks to himself. Do you know the difference? They might sound the same thing. Verses 3 to 14, he's been listening to himself. Verse 15, he speaks to himself. And it is different. He's been letting his mind run where it wants to. And it's been driven by how he's feeling. Round and round and round it's gone with all of these feelings of, it's not really worth serving God, I'm just having a tough time. Feelings of self-pity, round and round it's gone, listening to himself. But now in verse 15, he speaks to himself. He, He checks himself and says, no, actually, I mustn't say that. That would harm God's children. He's had his mind filled with confusion And at last he tells himself something he's definite about, something he's confident in. And it's something really small, so small you could skip over it and not notice. It is, I mustn't say things that would harm God's children. Now, now that isn't a piece of deep theology, is it? 
It's not an example of exalted spirituality, but it is something definite. At last, in all the confusion, he's got something definite. I mustn't say things that would harm God's children. There's something definite about that we could explore. He, he, there's something definite about God and, and these people. They're God's children and about his responsibility. But the point is, he's got something definite. His feet had been slipping, he says in verse 2. He'd nearly lost his foothold, he tells us in that verse. But actually, he's got a solid foothold. Even though it's a really simple one, at least it's a solid foothold. In the French Alps, some of the mountains have ladders fixed into the cliffs. And imagine you're climbing up one of these cliffs, up one of these ladders, and you start to slip. Oh dear, what do you need? Well, it's no rocket science, you need a foothold. And it's better to have a foothold even if it's the bottom rung than to be slipping even if you're halfway up or near the top. Even if it's the bottom rung, it doesn't matter. What you need is to get a foothold. And it may be a really basic foothold. I'm moving now from the Alps to our spiritual battle. It may be a really basic foothold, like, I mustn't hurt God's children. But it's something you're confident in. And then once you've got that foothold, well, you can step up. And you can step up from that. I've had times that my feet have been slipping. And I thought, how can I get my foothold? Well, I'm convinced of this. This world didn't just come about by accident. There must be a designer. There must be a creator. Now you might say, that's utterly basic. Do you, a minister of the church, have to get down to that level of there must be a creator, there must be a designer? Yes, I have to admit, I do. It's a really low rung, but at least it is a rung that I can get my feet on and be confident in, and then I can step up. Your bottom rung might be a lot higher. That would be great. It might be more exalted. That would be great. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is, can you identify that rung to get your feet on and be confident in it? Maybe your bottom rung is, there's good enough evidence that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. I can take them seriously. Maybe it is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he would have been forgotten. He must have risen from the dead. There's my bottom rung. Now I can step up. Maybe it is a past experience you've had. I know that God's word came to me with power and convicted me and changed me. Or I know that God has answered my prayers in the past. I can't see that he's doing it now, but I know he has. I've got a bottom rung. I get my foot on it. I'm no longer just falling down. It may be very low, but it's something I can stand on. Whatever it is, get your feet on it. Now, it's not irrelevant that Asaph's bottom rung, well, what is his bottom rung in verse 15? What is it? I think it's not at all irrelevant that it's thinking of others. Our doubts can so often be driven by circles of self-pitying feelings. And Asaph has been like that in verses 3 to 14. Circles of self-pitying feeling. He looks at others and then he dives into self. And this self-pitying feeling spirals down into this doubt. But now he thinks of others. His responsibility to them. How his words or his actions might affect them. That's a change of focus. 
And it helps to get him out of that feeling into thinking. It helps him move from listening to himself to speaking to himself. And I think that's a pretty common thing, that when we're in these spirals of doubt, they're often connected up with self-pity. And a good bottom rung may be to do with thinking about others and our responsibility to them. Well, in verse 15, there's Asaph, and he thinks about others, and particular others. Who are they? Well, they're God's children. And I wonder, did that prompt, verse 17, that he now goes to the place where he can mix with God's children? So let's move on to that secondly. We've had getting a foothold. However low it is, get that foothold. Now we have entering the sanctuary. And this is verses 16 to 20. Now, the last two Sundays, Eddie's been telling us the content of what he thought. The content was about God and about eternity. And that lifted him up above his envy. But tonight we're thinking about the process of his thoughts. Not the content, but how did he get there? How did he come to think like that? And that lifted him up above his doubts. So... Where did Asaph go? That's a a patronising question, isn't it? But someone tell us. Verse 17, where did he go? The sanctuary. But where? what what is that? What's the sanctuary? Some people call this room the sanctuary, but it's not really. What's the sanctuary? God's presence. Okay, God's presence. We've got a theological answer. What was it then to Asaph? The temple. Well, there is a little trick to this question, because was it the temple or was it the tabernacle? We don't really know. There are questions about this, uh, because it depends when you date when Asaph was and how many people you think there were called Asaph. But anyway, the tabernacle or the temple is one of those. It's worth remembering, actually, he physically went to a building or a tent, one or the other, but he went to a place. He did something practical. He had been listening to himself, and then he speaks to himself, but now he does something about it. Now that is worth remembering, because it's easy in our down state of doubts, just driven by our feelings, just to think about it. And maybe even pray about it, but so often our prayers, if we're honest, are just extending us thinking about it. But we pretend it's addressed to God, but it's just us churning over our mind still more, but not to actually do anything about it. By the way, I'm not discouraging praying. Uh, I hope you know that, and you'll find that out later as well. I'm not discouraging praying, but, but imagine this. Imagine you have doubts because you wonder, do I really love the Lord Jesus? I know I love my people in my family, but do I really love the Lord Jesus? I don't know, do I really feel I love him? And you wonder about this, and it it gives you doubts, and you think about it, and you pray that you would love him, and you even sing that great hymn, Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. But you never actually say, right, I'm going to set aside time to consider him, and his character, and what he's done. Now, you just carry on churning around your thoughts, do I love him? Oh, I'm not sure I do, and I pray about it, but what about doing something? What about setting aside some time to consider him and his character? Think about him and try to build up some love in him. 
So Asaph, he does something. He goes to this building. But let's think a bit more about what this sanctuary teaches us. What does sanctuary mean? You might get a clue in, does the first part of the word ring a bell? Sanct. Can you think of another word that's like that? Oh, I couldn't hear all of that. But I didn't hear the one I was looking for. Sanctified, which is being made holy. This is a place to do with holiness. What is holiness? It's devotion to God. This is a place all about God, all about his presence. Asaph's thoughts have been whizzing around with all these thoughts, feelings of self-pity. Then he pauses and thinks of God's children. And I wonder if that is what then gets him going to consider God and focus on God and get his mind on him. And not just in God in the abstract, but some particular things about God. So what was the main activity in the sanctuary? Sacrifice. So he goes to this place and it is dominated by sacrifices. It smells. Have you ever thought of how it would smell? There's animals being slaughtered. And there's blood sloshed around the place. His senses are bombarded by sacrifice. He hears the animals. I wonder if he hears the squeals. And he sees them. And he smells them. And his senses are bombarded by sacrifice. And it tells him the number one need in your life is not the money that the wicked have. It's not the health that the wicked have. It is to be free from God's judgment. To be reconciled with him. It tells him there is a judgment to escape. And there is life with God to attain. And so he understands. Verse 17 to 20 are about this. He understands. I've been looking at just here and now. There's a whole eternity ahead that I've been forgetting. I've been acting as if the great need is money and health, whereas the great need is to be right with God and on my way to be with him. The great need is to have hope in the face of death. Now, that's the content that we've been looking at the last two weeks. But our focus this evening is the process of how we got there. Let's have a think about how that applies to us. What is our equivalent of the sanctuary? There's more than one answer to this, so don't be afraid to say one. What's our equivalent of the sanctuary? It's Christ, yes. Can we say anything else? It is the cross, yes. And it's the church, okay, it's three, spot on. Okay, we've got them, good. It is. It is, it is above all Christ. He is our sanctuary. It is through him we know God. He is, of course, Emmanuel, God with us. It is the cross because his death is the one sacrifice that brings us to God, that tears down the temple in the, uh, not the temple, the curtain in the sanctuary. But of course, his body now, the church, is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, we got the three spot on. So for us, entering the sanctuary is thinking about the Lord Jesus. And maybe particularly when when we are with his people, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thinking about the Lord Jesus, and especially his death for us. So, if you're struggling with doubts, by the way, if you are, I'm hoping this is helping you. And if you're not, I'm hoping you're storing it up in your armoury for if those times come. 
Ask yourself, what are you confident about him? Your feet may have been slipping down the ladder. You've at last gotten them firm on a rung, even if it's a really basic one that other people would say, what are you talking about? Just, I mustn't harm God's children. But can you step up onto another rung? What are you confident about the Lord Jesus? And once you've got something about him fixed in your mind... Well, almost anything about him that you're confident in, well, then you can step up. Then, then higher rungs become quickly reachable. Oh, I'm convinced that the Gospels are reliable eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus. Well, then I can step up onto he rose from the dead. And then I can step up onto his words must be true. And then I can step up and up and up because his words cover all of my life. I hope you've got the picture. Let's notice something else about basic about Asaph. What happens when he goes to the sanctuary? Verse 17, what happens to him when he goes to the sanctuary? He gets understanding precisely. The things I've just been describing are matters of understanding. That is basic, but it's often missed. I'll give you an example. Rose has had a hard life. She's been badly treated by the men in her life and she feels very lonely and unable to trust anyone. And as is so often the case, that merges into can she trust God? And so all sorts of questions swirl around in her mind. But when she goes to church, it makes her feel better. She enjoys the singing, It's nice to mix with people. It takes her mind off her troubles. It soothes her and she feels better. But then when she wakes up on Monday, her troubles are still there. And they swirl round and round in her mind until the next Sunday. And the same thing happens again. That's treating church like a drug to soothe us. Like, that's like the drinker, isn't it? Who, he drowns his sorrows in the bottle, but they're still there when he's sobered up. Psalm 73 doesn't say get to church to get soothed. It says get to church to consider the Lord Jesus, to work at understanding him and how you need him. That doesn't mean we each need a PhD in theology. It's all quite basic stuff in Psalm 73. But it does mean we need a response to our troubles that is based on truth, not just feelings. Because feelings pass so quickly, but truth lasts eternally. Well, this understanding makes Asaph think again about something else, and this time it's himself. So we've had first, get your foot on the bottom rung. We've had secondly, get into the sanctuary. Now we have thirdly, humbling yourself before God. Verses 21 and 22, humbling yourself before God. Now, there was Asaph and he was listening to his feelings and then he speaks to himself and he gets a foothold. And then he goes into the sanctuary and gets understanding. And that makes him think again about himself. Verse 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He sees... I've been carried away by my feelings. 
my heart was grieved, my spirit was embittered, it's me being carried away by my feelings, and I just went with it and I let them take over me. My feelings took control. And in verse 22 he says, well that was senseless of me, that was ignorant, I've not been using the reason and the mind and the thoughtfulness that God has given me. As someone who's not just a brute beast, I'm made in his image. I'm made to think things through, to use my understanding. He realises, I was acting as if I'm an animal. Now, what does it take to make a pet dog happy? Some of you know this better than me. I've never had a pet dog. But I'm guessing some food, some exercise. I think they like fun, don't they? Throw a ball for them and all that sort of thing. Some warmth, they need shelter a mate, that sort of thing. Now, I imagine that those are all just instincts a dog has, I think. I don't think dogs think about the philosophy of life and decide these are the needs of a dog. I don't think it's thought through like that. I think it's just an instinct. They go for it. That's what they want. And Asaph realises here in verse 22, I've been acting as if I'm just an animal. As if I just have animal needs... And as if I'm just driven by my instincts. Do you see, when our thoughts about God are wrong, our thoughts about ourselves go wrong. His thoughts about God went wrong, and so his thoughts about himself went wrong. And ironically, here as he's humbling himself, he's also being exalted. Because he's seeing, I was acting like I was a brute beast, but I'm not. I'm not. God's made me something different from that. And Asaph in verses 21 to 22 isn't just thinking this to himself. What is Asaph doing? And the clue is the last two words of verse 22. What is Asaph doing here? Look at the last two words of verse 22. Yes, and what is he doing there? Look at the last two words. He's coming before God, and he is speaking to him, isn't he? Before you. You see the word you? He's speaking to God. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. A brute, I was a brute beast before you. He's speaking to God. He uses the word you. And he clearly means God, and that tells us he's speaking to God. And he carries on speaking to God, verse 23 onwards. Yet I am always with you. Now, notice the progression. Have you remembered it? What's he done? He was listening to himself. But in verse 15, he's pulled himself up and started speaking to himself. But now he's moved on to something much better. He's gone from speaking to himself to speaking to God. Do you see that? It's so crucial. So crucial we move from listening to ourselves, just letting our thoughts run away, to pull yourself up and speak to yourself. But it's then crucial we move on from that to speaking to God. And it's so crucial that I'm going to repeat exactly what I said on Psalm 13 a few weeks ago. Because this is so important. My comments earlier were not discouraging prayer. Because it is, if if anything is a necessity, this is. 
So I'll repeat what I said last time, and many of you have heard it. I, I went to Word Alive. Good conference it was, very helpful. And there was a theologian from America there whose books I've read and still read and find helpful. And there was a question and answer session. And I put in this question, what, should, what is a Christian's response to doubts? What should be a Christian's response to doubts? And I got this answer back, which was, well, it depends what the doubts are. So, for example, if you're doubting the reliability of the Bible, look at the manuscript evidence, and so on. And the answer was like that. And that was okay in so far as it went, but I had said, what should be a Christian's response to doubt? Because a Christian's response to doubt mustn't just be, let's look at the evidence. It must include, speak to God about the doubts. Because if we don't speak to God about them... We're acting as if sorting them out is in our own hands. We're acting as if I am a neutral, impartial observer and I can work it out. Instead of, God, I am in trouble here and I need you. We've moved from doubting to downright unbelief. If we don't, take them to God. Essential. It is essential. I've shown you, I've tried to show you from Psalm 73 this path from doubting to delight, but please do not think of it as a self-help guide. Please do not think of it as seven steps to delighting in God, and if I do these, I'll sort it out. Because you will not sort it out. You need your Father, and you need to say to him, Father, I need your help. Help me overcome these doubts. Give me the faith that I'm struggling with, but need. And notice when you speak to God, well, what does Asaph include in verse 22? What does he include? This speaking to God must include telling him how you've sinned. Telling him how you've been foolish. Admit to him the thoughts you've been having about him. Be specific. Be honest. He's a good father. He can take it. And he can help you with them. And he wants you to be honest with him. And he wants you to be humble with him. And I think it's no coincidence that after admitting these things in verse 22 and bringing himself down almost to the lowest point, I've been like a brute beast. It's then he gets the joy of verse 23 onwards. After all, someone has said... Repeatedly in the Bible, whoever humbles themselves, God exalts. So he, after that, gets the heights of verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. A verse worth turning over and over and over in your mind. I think one of the loveliest verses in the Bible. But I hope the message tonight has been an encouragement to you to doubters who hear verse 25 and say, but I'm just so far off verse 25. It's all very well me hearing that, but I'm just so far off it. Or maybe you even doubt its truth or doubt it's any help. If you're not in that state of mind, and I hope most of us are not, well, I hope you'll remember tonight's message. Store it up in your armoury, ready for if those doubts come. And remember, Psalm 73 doesn't go straight from the doubts to verse 25 and just say, pull your socks up and believe it. 
Psalm 73 doesn't just say, fix your eyes on Jesus and everything is fine. Oh, this was a Dr. Lloyd-Jones quote, actually, by the way. He shocked me. He said, it doesn't just, that's often no help to people to say, just fix your eyes on Jesus. I thought, whoa, you can't say that. Of course you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. But he says, sometimes people need a lot of help with doing it. And Psalm 73 gives you help to get there. So you can go from verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And you can go through getting a foothold and then climbing a little higher. All the time fixing your eyes on Jesus, but you may need help to do so. Until you reach verse 28. Did you notice the link? Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Verse 28, but as for me, it's good for me to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. He's got a foothold, he's climbed a little higher, he's climbed up the mountainside until he's climbed into the refuge. And there still, your life may be battered by the storm and the rain may lash against you, but you know you're safe and you're secure because God himself is the refuge.